Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. You know, if you're a chef, do you do a restaurant cookbook or do you do your at-home cookbook? Where the restaurant cookbook is like this memento and a, a marketing right. product, but people can't do it. Right. And I feel like we really try to thread the needle of these are restaurant recipes, but we've done everything we can to let you do it. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Hilary Dixler-Kenevin is Eater's restaurant editor and the author of a great new book, Eater, 100 Essential Restaurant Recipes. Now, I've known Hilary for years, and I, I just respect her so much. I love her journalism and the work she's done at Eater for over a decade. And this book is absolutely remarkable. I love it so much. It's editorial. It features recipes from 100 restaurants. And really, it's cookable. You can make these recipes. I just love talking to Hilary, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Hilary Dixler-Canavan, welcome to This Is Taste. How are you? I'm great, and I'm very excited to be here. My God, I've known you forever. I know, and it's taken forever to make this happen. I know, it's been a little <laughs> while, but it's a good reason. Your book is extremely cool. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm just holding it right now. 100 Central Recipes, Eater is the, the place you work. And you did a cookbook for theater. Mm-hmm. Our first cookbook, our first book, really our first, yeah, physical mm-hmm. editorial product. Yeah, right. You don't have to have like a uh, an iPhone or a computer to use it. It's cool because I'm such a fan of this book. I mean, the, I'm a fan of yours and I, I love your journalism and have followed your career for from, from day one, essentially, it feels like. But also, I just think this book is terrific. Thank you so much. That yeah. really means a lot. You, you did a, a wonderful job. It's not an easy project, an anthology um, with all the different chefs' voices. It's it's 100 recipes from, from 100 restaurants around the country. We'll get into that, but I want to know, you used to live in New York. It's when mm-hmm. we became friends when you are living here. Um, where do you go first, restaurant-wise? In New York? Yeah. So I have a few different New York musts. I feel like the first thing that changed when I moved to California was that when I would come back, I would make this like mad dash to try to mainline New York feelings. (laughs) So that could look like making sure I was getting to Russ and Daughter's original location, making sure I was going to Balthazar, Union Square Cafe, like the places that feel so New York. Mm -hmm. Um, On this trip, Um, my first meal, I arrived on Sunday and Sunday night, I went to Superiority Burger and that totally did the thing because it's in that, now it's like in the old Odessa space. So I was like in this historic space, like I've been on, you know, I like used to drink with my husband at Odessa and, Uh you know, and I had been going to Superiority Burger since it was like an OG pop-up. Yeah. When he was like sitting at a food events and serving the veggie burger there. Yeah. Yeah. Or like trekking out to, I think that he did one, like trekking out to Gowanus. Yep. Uh, eating a veggie burger. Um, so that felt very essential New York-y to me. Um, and then I would say the other, uh, New, the New Yorkness of it all, New York is like uh, ground zero for the idea of hot, buzzy, gotta go. 
restaurant. Yeah. So that's always a part of the trip. It's part of my job. Yeah, because you're you're the restaurant editor. Yeah. Leader. I mean, <laughs> you're you're running the the national coverage of the of this publication that's so important. So you've got that. Yeah. Too. So it's literally my job, but it's also my pleasure. <laughs> and um, so every New York trip, I try to get somewhere new. Um, so on this trip, I went to Lords. Yeah. You know, and um, game set of, match. Lords. Yeah. <laughs> Good place. Everyone likes that place. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Ed and Patricia had just gotten their copy of the cookbook. So it was like up um, nice. near their POS system. Oh, spotted that's in the wild. Nice to have all the, the participating restaurants, you know, put the copy in the restaurant. Yeah. I don't know that everybody will do that, no. but that's it, very cool. I like it. So how has New York changed? I'm really curious about this question. I feel like you you have this perspective of living in Los Angeles now. You also lived in, in San Francisco, but it's been a few years since you've lived in New York. How has it changed by your um, estimates? I mean, it's a cliche to say that the nature of the city is change, but it, it truly does change. I mean, even going back to like going to Superiority Burger, I was struck by how polite, you know, the letter avenues are now. Mm-hmm. Um I was also struck by, I went to um, Place de Fete mm-hmm. last night and um, walking around that part of Clinton Hill, it was so busy. That feels very new to yeah. me. So like where people are hanging out, who's hanging out where, what these neighborhoods feel like feels different to me. I think there's also something very different about restaurant culture in New York now versus when I lived in New York. And then even before that, when I worked in New York restaurants that I feel like that is something I'm I feel like I'm continually relearning every mm-hmm. time I come to the city. Yeah, the sharp edges maybe aren't, aren't quite there. I feel maybe there is a little bit more community in some ways. I, I'm, I'm I'm hearing that from you. Yeah, and I think there's also it feels and it's not surprising that it feels this way, but it feels to me a little bit less risky and a little less um taking big swings. And I was in Philly a few months ago, and that's what's happening in Philly right now. There is so much happening, so many cool new restaurants opening in surprising ways. And I think it's that thing of if you can afford to live there, you can afford to be creative somewhere. Yeah. And it is really hard to live in New York. Yeah. Right now. Great point, Hillary. I think that's such such a well-said point. It's It's you have to really, before you launch your restaurant, you have to be so ready for the masses and and be able to, you know, give the masses what they want. And and sometimes it has to be safer. Yeah. And and I want to be clear. It's not to say that there aren't New York restaurants taking risks. And I think even something like um, an an opening like Attaboy is a risk. You know, that something like that didn't exist before. That's a risk. But it's not the same as a of it's not the same kind of risk as like a 24 year old who's just going to give it a go. Yeah, right. With just like a a staff of three or four, which I found a lot. I was in Houston recently and I I found that a lot in Houston. There's a lot of young talent opening in, in cool spaces there. I love dining in Houston. It's definitely one of my favorite cities in America. It was amazing. I also feel like there's a very fun like Houston X LA thing where there's that like the oddball nature of the way Houston is built because of like literally I think it's like they do not have zoning laws or they they literally don't they like literally don't and with LA's sprawl and Houston's sprawl but again the like historic it's a little easier to live there 
A lot, yeah, I no, feel like there's no, an you're, LA you're, Houston you're vibe. You're on point, and it has a lot of LA uh, vibe. Do you go to Tatemo up in the North Houston? No, I haven't made it. That place, I mean, it shares a wall with a uh, with a church. Perfect. So it's like it's definitively Houston. We'll, we'll actually get into Houston in, a, in another episode. It may have run already, but um, let's talk about um, Eater. Realizing that um, home cooking actually matters, and I joke because years ago, I remember Leventhal and Locke, the the founders of Eater, were so anti home cooking. We were allowed to use any photos of food on the site. <laughs> right. Yeah. That That's, wow. I did not know that. That was a long time right. ago. That was pre-Vox Media days. But it seems like at that time they were like extremely allergic to any kind of home cooking. It was like the, the delineation was restaurant culture is here. Fair enough. To have, you guys are at the top of the top of the heap doing it the best in the country. Um, but what then changed? I know at home is a part of the eater universe now. Rebecca Flint Marks runs that. She's great. And um, what changed and what made you write a cookbook, which is like the antithesis of what Locke and, 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 and Ben were saying back in the day? I know. I sent an email to Ben, like, offer, you know, I wanted to get his address to send him a coffee. And I was like, brace for food photos. Hilarious <laughs> note. Um, so in a very concrete way, we launched Eater at Home during the pandemic um, and we knew Amanda Clute, who was then the editor-in-chief of Eater. She's now the group publisher of Eater, Thrillist, and Pop Sugar and Punch. Um, you know, Amanda, our dot-com lead, Erin Jesus. it was pretty clear that we needed to continue to meet readers where they were. And they were literally at home. Hmm. So I remember Erin came to me and she was like, can you please, like, write up a memo of what an at-home sub-vertical would look like. What could we do cadence-wise? What would feel eatery? What is the eatery way in here? Knowing that our readers are food savvy, some of our readers are extremely passionate cooks and some people never cook. Mm -hmm. So I like wrote that memo. I had like this whole plan laid out. It got green light and within four weeks of writing that memo, Eater at Home launched. And my strategy with that was thinking, continuing to center restaurant expertise, so expert advice, restaurant experience, um, and again, like walking that, like, I would not assume knowledge, but I would also not assume ignorance. I love that. That's so smart. It's exactly the way this book is framed and a lot of that home content. But this book in particular, you can't assume anything with your reader, but you have to make it not boring. You can't make it um, didactic. You can't. You have to make it extremely um, eater, right? And and let me. My question is: is how do you get a hundred chefs? to give you their recipes that aren't literally uh, a trash fire? Yeah, so there are uh, a lot of emailing and phone calling. So. I think I think there's sort of two parts to it, which is at that moment in time, did the chef or restaurant in question have the capacity to participate? I did everything I could to make participation as low lift as possible. The recipe tester and developer we worked with, Louis Victa, her background, she was a professional line cook. She then moved into recipe development. She also does food photography. But I knew that I could rely on Louis to, like, take Chef Chicken Scratch mm -hmm. and, like, work with it and ask good follow-ups and all of that. So assuring chefs that, like, I'm not asking you to do the adaptation work. Um, and so I think the other element of it is I— I've been at Eater for over 10 years. I used to work in the restaurant industry and I had a, my 
my work there connected me with a lot of the chefs that are in the book as well. So I have sort of a, a, a deep personal relationships with a lot of chefs around the country and they know and trust me and they know that I'm going to work really hard and do yeah. it really well. So I think that leap of faith was a bit easier for them because it was too people they trusted. It was Eater yeah. and it was me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And then in terms of, um, yeah, so there's a the 100 recipes that are in the book. The book is also like stuffed with like how-tos and tips yeah. from chefs, bartenders, um, sommeliers. So beyond the restaurants that are featured in the recipes. So I was emailing with uh, literally hundreds mm-hmm. of people. And with any cookbook, there were also recipes that we couldn't end up printing in the final edition. And that was actually one of the things that makes books very different from working on the internet. Yeah. Where I, it's not that we've never cut things from a package or from a story, but if I really want it, it can run on site. And we've done that with some of the recipes that we didn't have room for. Yep. But that was an adjustment. Yeah, it must for have me. been tough to have like a real copy fit moment, which uh, mm-hmm. is like part of the magazine and book business. And uh, let's go back to the conversion because I think that's a really big part of this book is actually getting recipes that work. And I've I've written books with two chefs, and 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 really the the challenge can be uh, making a restaurant dish work at home. So your your recipe converter, how, how what was the process like? Because I feel like you you this these recipes work. I mean, they're great recipes. Yeah. So for some of the recipes, I went in with a clear idea of how I wanted to ask, or you know, get a chef to agree to let me do the hack or the corner mm-hmm. cut that I envisioned. So for some examples of that, like. Um, Peter Cho, um, chef owner of Toki and Hanok, has these essence of ramen wings. And at the restaurant, he and, and his team, they're like doing food science, you know. Yeah. We're just using a packet of ramen seasoning. <laughs> and it's so delicious, you know. And it's not – and like Pete was like totally on board with like, yeah, just rip it open, shake it over. So like the, your project is frying chicken. Yeah. You know, um, or, or like um, – with the Jian Famous Foods recipe, when I reached out to Jason, I asked if he would be down for us to start the recipe with a jar of chili crisp. And he was so into it. And then he was like, you know, the hand-torn noodles are a project, and this tastes really good over rice. So we have the recipe for the hand-torn noodles in the book. But once you're starting with a jar of chili crisp and serving it over rice, that's now like a weeknight Yeah, recipe. and you're, you're just articulating like the combination of, of flavors and ingredients at some point more than just like making everything from scratch. Yeah, or like, you know, the Thai diner, disc, um, the, the Thai disco fries. I was like, seems to me we should like, let's just use frozen crinkle cuts and like, don't you think we should put them in the air fryer so they're really sturdy? Yeah. I can like handle being with curry and, you know, yeah. I noticed this yes. when paging through the, the book, I noticed a lot of really tactical and, and sharp recipe choices, which I love because a lot of these anthology books don't do that, which is fine. Some books are not for everyone. Um, I love the shout out to Peter at Hanok. Um, he's in our book, Korea World, um, and we did that jungle with a hot pot with him. Yeah, and to echo like a previous theme, like I worked with Peter a very long time ago at the Breslin. This is somebody I've known a real long time. So I think he was down, you know, to see what that adaptation. To to adapt some of the restaurant dishes. We'll get into the sidebar content um, because I think it's really key um, to make this actually a cool reading experience. Um, But I do want to ask you about how do you tackle 
several of these, I would call them like master cuisines. And that's just like my broad terms of like pizza, sushi, and noodles plus sauce, which could be like ramen or, or any types of other noodles, even pasta. How are you able to translate these like this these these crafts? Like pizza is like not easy at home. Sushi is, you know, there's books about sushi at home. That's a huge task for you as the author. It's a it's a big task and you you've risen to the occasion. How did you do that? One of the ways I approached those, as you called it, like master cuisines or like categories, is I put them into breakout sections. So I gave them their own special section. And then that let me think about them separate from the rhythms of the other chapters. And then for like talking through sushi, for example, I knew there's no world in which this is a book to teach people how to make sushi at home. And in fact, I as a diner don't think you should make sushi at home. So when I was on the phone with Nick from Indo in St. Louis, I reached out to see um, we have a recipe of his um, for sashimi. And I also said, I was like, I have this instinct that you should go out for maki, but stay home for chirashi or, you know, like um, donburi. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you should stay home for hand rolls. I was like, tell me about that. Mm -hmm. So he walked me through his whole at-home hand roll setup. Like he's sitting on the couch. He's got like Tupperware of rice. And, you know, so that's the opening of that section is go out for maki, stay home for hand rolls, as told to by Nick Mockner. And so that is the approach that I took with those cuisines. So like with pizza, the pizza section opens with like, if you're getting into pizza, Hmm. part of what you're getting into is gear. I talk to all these pizzaiolos about what gear you actually need at home. Yeah. And with the pizza recipes, for example, several of them, we were just like, we'll just use a store-bought pie crust. But you know, we have an at-home dough recipe from Anthony Mangieri from Una Pizza Napolitana. That restaurant is very important to me. I was, like, thrilled that Anthony was down to share um, his strategies with mm-hmm. a home cook. And we also have the dough recipe for the Al Forno grilled pizza because that one is actually yeah. doable at home because that restaurant isn't really a pizzeria. Yeah. Great call to, to have a grilled grilled pie in there, but also using at home uh, dough or a store-bought dough or, you know, Bambi's even from the p- pizzeria down the street. Yeah, totally. Um, and so that was one, I would say that was sort of the guiding approach was like trying to acknowledge when when the move is to go out for it and what what can you do at home? When you are thinking about this book project, Hillary, is there a recipe in the early days that you're like, I need this recipe. This is like the one that I need. And also second part is, was there a time when you were just like bugging and bugging and bugging the chef to give you the recipe that eventually came in? Cause I've certainly been there myself. Yeah. A recipe I knew we needed was the Veracruz migas. So Veracruz is a beloved Austin um, taqueria, um, and they work out of, like, food trucks. They now have brick and mortars. But, like, OG Eater recommendation. I I don't want to be wrong about this. I'm pretty sure Eater Austin was among the first media to cover them. And it's possibly, like, the single most recommended dish across the Eater universe <laughs> is uh, – like getting breakfast tacos at Veracruz. So I was like, that to me is like the perfect recipe for this book. It's one of our favorite restaurants. It's the the dish. Mm -hmm. And what was fun was not only were they down to share the recipe, they were like, we'll do a one pan migas. It's like, great. It's it's not, it's like totally doable at home. And um, 
Veracruz like start when they when they started they were really about like smoothies and juices and they still do that it's just not what people yeah, are it's Instagramming. A, it's the breakfast migas. It's so tacos, like yeah. We also have a smoothie recipe from them. Oh, fun. You guys well. get them in So you get twice. like the full experience. So I think that's a good example. I think of the like OG eater faves like kachka, nongs. Um, yeah. And then I knew – I also knew I really wanted to have a solid representation of old institution restaurants in the book. So I worked pretty hard to make sure we were getting recipes from places like Keen's um, – Tam O'Shanter in LA, yeah, those historic um, spots. In terms of chefs I bugged, I will not be naming names. <laughs> um, you know, everybody has different capacity. Everybody yeah. is working at different speeds. I am thrilled with the mix. Yeah. It's, you did such a great job with the classic versus the new, and it doesn't feel like it has a time stamp of 2023 in it, which and is- And yet it, a- like, inherently is. Of course it does. I mean, everything that is published has a point of view from that period, but you definitely didn't want it to feel like super, like only new places. Totally. And, you know, the thing with restaurants is they're living, breathing organisms. And I did my best to create, um, to include restaurants that I think will continue to stand the test of time. But as we know, Restaurants close for a lot of reasons, and it's one of those things. Is like I know with a hundred percent certainty that restaurants that are in this book will eventually close. Yeah, and then we'll have this book. Yep. To like forever have that memory and that connection to these restaurants. Yeah, that we love. I love the yellow. By the way, I'm just gonna say that Thanks. you picked a good yellow. It's the yellow is tough, and you picked you, a good one. I mean, the whole process of designing the cover was fascinating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's we we do that a lot here at Penguin Random. I'm sure it is a big process. Okay, so the the Taylor egg and cheese from Summit Diner is the first recipe in the book, and and there's definitely a lot of Hillary in this book, which I love because I love what you do. That was a choice. That was such a choice. I am from New Jersey. I am a proud Jersey kid. I really wanted to have a diner represented in the book. It's a staple of American dining. I think one of the things that New York-based media organizations get wrong is like New Jersey. And so I reached out to the Summit Diner for a couple of reasons. One, it was one of my diners. So every New Jersey family has their diner. Like my family had three. Mm-hmm. Summit Diner was one of them. It's, uh, I think the stat is like, it's considered or it's like, you know, all this stuff is a little apocryphal, but mm-hmm. it's <laughs> possibly the longest continuously operating diner in New Jersey. It's in a train car. And what I also loved about including Summit Diner is for New Yorkers, you can take NJ Transit to Summit and walk to the diner. So the book is also sort of a guidebook. It you should, can absolutely use this as your travel guide. It's a wonderful guidebook. That's yeah, what I love like, about it. We want you to go to all yeah. these restaurants. And so part of picking Summit Diner as the New Jersey Diner is a New, York, New Yorkers or anyone visiting New York can easily get there. Um, and I uh, wanted to tailor ham, egg, and cheese because that's New Jersey. Yeah, talk about Taylor Ham, what that is, because that's a that's a very, very Jersey and unique to Jersey, and many don't know what that is, and it's fucking great. It's it's pork roll. It's it's like a salty cured pork product. It's difficult to find outside of New Jersey. So in the book, I recommended subbing in Canadian bacon, which at least you can slice to a similar thickness. <laughs> like crazy to say it, but Canadian bacon is not as salty it, it as isn't. pork roll um, or Taylor Ham. So, you know. In the recipe, I, like, recommend, like, not salting. Taylor pork roll and or Taylor ham, holy shit, it is, like, the, the, it is, like, taking salt to its absolute extreme. 
But I love it so salt much. Salt is so good with eggs. Yes, it is. Um, and it's just a perfect breakfast sandwich. Um, so that was really important to me to include uh, my diner. Another specific question between Oma's Hideaway and Nong's, and then, of course, Judy Roger, Rogers' uh, chicken from San Francisco. Your three chicken recipes, or three of them, are coming from the West Coast. It seems you're making a statement that roast chicken, chicken dishes live in a very nice place in the West Coast. From the jump, I knew I wanted to do a whole chapter on chicken. And when you look at how chicken moved from being considered like, I don't know, like uh, the yokels will order it, the chicken, <laughs> you know, like that's like the dum-dums. Right. The basics. You know, like the fool's order. Yeah. To actually having this really prominent place on the menu. So much of that goes back to Zuni. Um, so I admittedly, I don't even think I thought about the West Coastness of it all in terms of who I was putting in mm -hmm. that chapter. It just organically, yeah. that's what happened. Um, and the Zuni adaptation I love because obviously like the Zuni cookbook is iconic. It doesn't need adaptation. So instead we worked on like, what if you do it on your grill? Like just uh, taking the inspiration and moving it in a new direction. And also that recipe includes very good usable instructions for how to spatchcock. Yeah. All. But also like you can just get your butcher to do it. You can definitely get your butcher to do it at Whole Foods and those places, but definitely the technique in those those three recipes. Um, I definitely learned some things from it. Uh, another sidebar I really liked was leveling up your burrito at home because I think burritos at home is something we always want to do. It's like uh, such a delicious, fun food to serve for your fam or just yourself. But how did like... Oftentimes it's it's misses the mark, right? So what's your advice to leveling up the burrito at home? Well, the advice we gathered, um, there's some really fun tips in there. I mean, I think it was um, Luis from Maya Boyla's food in um, in Atlanta it was like phyllo dough, and I was like, that's Whoa. crazy. But Dang. like, all right, bust my gut, you know. Wow. Um, Jonathan Whitener from Here's Looking at You in L.A. had, like, this great tip about, like, anytime you go out for, like, a barbecue that you like, you just, like, take a little sausage, put it in a little Ziploc, freeze it. That is now, like, your burrito yeah. enhancement at home. Um, so, you know, all the chefs had such great tips about it. I mean, for me, I burritos are something I eat out. Mm -hmm. um, but I love I love the tips that we got because it's it makes it more exciting to think about doing it. Up. Yeah, the frozen bag of langanista, having that ready to to put in the burrito. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I'm more of an eating burrito out kind of person. But, I, you know, I moved to a spot in, in the Hudson Valley that doesn't have a lot of great burritos out. So I'm forced to make them myself. And Yeah, and uh, maybe um, Chintan from Damaco, his big, like, leftover burritos move is to air fry them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, for real. Chintan's going to do Mexican at some point. It's going to happen. That Those guys are taking over the world. I love what they're doing. I'm glad you brought up his name. Um, what did you learn putting the dessert chapter together? That's a tough one to me because desserts are obviously such a category on its own for a cookbook. You don't want it to be an afterthought. So And, uh, and they're not an afterthought at great restaurants. Um so with the dessert chapter, I'm I used the sidebars to really push into like the chapter intro and the sidebars to really push into why desserts matter at restaurants. Um, and so some of the things I learned on a personal level, it was really validating 
to hear from professional chefs, even professional pastry chefs, that they too, when they're entertaining at home, often think of dessert as a place to do their best shopping, but that you're not necessarily, that you're not obligated to do a project to serve dessert with hospitality at home. The recipes that we included in the dessert chapter, um, I really wanted, I'm really excited that we have the chocolate souffle from Pajoli because I mean, obviously souffle is so restauranty. Mm-hmm. So I loved that there was that, you know, it's, yeah, to, it's so restauranty. So we have that vibe. But then we really also have some dessert projects that are very, very manageable. So reams like halwa truffles, a beginner can absolutely do that. And like, yeah, when you dip in chocolate, it's going to be a little messy looking, but you're going to, you can cover up all your mistakes with mm-hmm. pistachio. Or you can just have mistakes and it's fine. Or just like have mistakes, it's, it's fine and it's going to be delicious. Uh, the Pajo Lee legendary Santa Monica restaurant, I mean, you, you have that as your last recipe. You, I, We often ask about our last recipes, but here you go. You actually talked about the last recipe in your cookbook. You're the first person who's ever done that on our show. It's a great cool. recipe. I love it. Yeah, and it's such, uh, souffle is something that I think even for the most, I don't know, staid restaurant diner or only you only go out, ever go out for special occasions. If you think about like the stereotypical restaurant menu, it would be chocolate souffle, but nothing about what Dave Barron does is stereotypical. So you are learning classic technique and also learning about how he thinks innovatively. How did you get a Dave Barron recipe and how many pages was that? And like, was it? So when I reached out how did I, I got it by asking. Yeah. Um, good, good. I covered his openings um, in L.A. Um, from the jump, and I was really excited about his work. Um, and we've always, I don't know, we've done some good interviews, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, with that recipe, I asked for the full recipe because I wanted to see what what was what. What was under the hood. What was under the hood? And then, of course, under the hood was a Paco Jet. Yeah, exactly. So I... The Paco Jet from the menu. Yeah. Hilarious. I can't I can't not think about a Paco I Jet know. without that movie now. Um, but I asked him if he would be okay with us just recommending, like, buy the best ice cream you can get. Because, like, yeah. we're asking the reader to focus on souffle. And he was totally down. Um, and so with, with, with instances like that, like, we have... A, throughout the book, there are a few... There are several instances of subbing in something store-bought or, like, you could go to your local bakery, get that. Um, And I did my best to acknowledge the way the restaurant does it is this. In this recipe, what what we're going to tell you to do is that. Read the head notes. Yep. The head notes definitely kind of declare what part of the restaurant dish is in this recipe and when it's not. It's important. And, like, obviously, as the person who wrote the head notes, I also would, you know, the head (laughs) notes are where the, like, the why and the yeah. and the how of it all comes out and like why this restaurant's in the book, what this restaurant has done for dining culture. So I'm very, I really wanted the book to be readable, even for someone who will never cook anything. Yeah. And that's like the work of the head notes and the sidebars and interstitials. Let's talk a little bit about your day job. I mean, it's September, which means it's like list season. I mean, Food and Wine, New York Times, Bon Appetit have all dropped lists. I know you are authoring your own. What do you? What, are you are you going to drop one soon? Yep. Um, Best New Restaurants comes out on November seventh. Cool. So it's been a thing to do cookbook promo and um, Best New Restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Scouting big, big, and building. Big, you're busy. This fall. This is a very busy fall. Um, yeah. So I've been leading our Best New Restaurants list since. 2019. 
Um, and when I took over that list, um, so Bill Addison was the Eater's former restaurant editor, now the dining critic at the LA Times. When I took over that project, the first thing I did um, was I felt like the project would feel more like Eater if it wasn't just written by one person. That one of the things that makes Eater so unique is that we have journalists in 20 plus cities and I wanted their voices to be in the project. So yeah, starting in 20, 2019, the way BNR works is that we have blurbs written by other national staffers, our, our, um, our local staffers, and that my work is equal parts writing, editing, but like it's like curation mm -hmm. and like being the person tasked with like what stories are we telling this year what restaurants help us tell those key th you know pull the key threads of dining through the year um but it doesn't have to be me being the only one yeah saying what was good i so i fully agree with that decision i, I think that's a really smart way to do it and i feel like you've done it for a long time and others are now doing it i th also think it's also more humane it's a it's a more humane lifestyle yeah, one person to write all is challenging I, I also like i'm not sure how involved you were with the cookbook previews um of the fall but a really terrific work here having a lot of your staffers write these these pretty extensive um previews reviews and then you went in broke down some nice feature articles with some of the fall authors i love it yeah. So Rebecca Flint Marks leads our cookbook coverage. Yeah. We'd been doing cookbook previews. That was like one of the ways we had like our first, I guess you could think of that as like our eaters first forays into home cooking coverage. And we've been covering cookbooks for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, Paula Forbes, who now runs Stained Page News, um, she used to work at Eater. She's obviously a cookbook enthusiast. So she was a big part of like uh, building up cookbook coverage yep, on, exactly. on Eater.com. Um, but the cookbooks we were mostly covering were like uh, a restaurant is coming out with a cookbook. Yeah. Um, and then we would cover major, major titles in the home cooking space where it's like, no, this is very relevant food news. So we'll cover it now that we are more, uh, you know, like now that we have a home section, I think our cookbook coverage is far more robust. We're doing recipes. We're more excerpting interviews with authors. But yeah, those, um, Seasonal previews, opening that up to staffers. That We've been doing that for a while. And it's fun because, you know, there's a reason a staffer wants to write about that book. And that will connect with the reader for that book. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's really terrific read. I'll link to in the show notes, the fall preview. And um, I mean, I have to ask you, is there a future where Eater has a test kitchen, where Eater is, is really going full into home cooking in, in even a bigger way? I think anything is possible. Anything is possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I put you on the spot with that one. I mean, I know it's not your your decision wholly, but um, I'm a huge fan of Eater. I think you guys do terrific work. So thank you so much. Nice, nice. And in this cookbook, again, I'm I'm just I'm blown away by how editorial it is. It's definitely my kind of book. So congrats. Thanks. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording, but I had a hunch that you specifically would like this book because I think of the books that you've worked on, like especially the Koreatown cookbook, but like you create books that have what I think of as like a magazine-y feel. Yeah. And I think this does in its own way too. Like these breakout sections could have been special feature packages. Yeah. Um, the Visually, um, we really, 
I really wanted this. Um, I worked with Britt Abadaleb, who was Eater's VP of Development. And when she, she like, architected the book deal and was a key um, member of, like, the creative team um, on the book. And she and I were both um, really aligned on, like, we didn't want there to be too much white space because we could fill the white space with this helpful content. Always my instinct and um, bless my designer, Robert Diaz, for Korea World that's coming out next year. And and he, him and I have uh, negotiated Francis Lamb and Susan the white space. We need more. Do we need less? Because I always want to pack stuff into. I'm the same way. And I think that was a big back and forth with Abrams. And I love where we landed on it. But part of what I was really after by um, interspersing content rather than only full page spreads that are a breakout of, you know, yeah, non-recipe content was like, I really wanted that sense of like a reason to turn the page. Yeah. And like the word I kept using was lively. Yeah. I wanted the book to feel Energy. lively and energetic. No, it's totally the truth. And so I'm, yeah, I'm pleased with how that yeah. came out. It's really the, I think it's the future of cookbooks. I also think like you think about great magazines, indie magazines, it costs 20 bucks. Gladly will pay it. This is 32, 35. This is a book. A few more words in there. I'm just saying we are willing to pay 20 for great magazines. So why not pay 30, 35 for a great book? I mean, cookbooks are growing so fast. I think it's a great industry. Yeah. And to be a little salesy about it, there really isn't anything like this. So for the restaurant lover in your life, if you want to get them some a gift or there's no there's anthologies out there, but not that includes so many different people. Um, and there's so few restaurant cookbooks that are designed to be doable. Like, that's the great debate on the yeah. publishing side is like, you know, if you're a chef, do you do a restaurant cookbook or do you do your at-home cookbook? Where the restaurant cookbook is like this memento and a, a marketing right. product, but people can't do it. Right. And I feel like we really try to thread the needle of these are restaurant recipes, but we've done everything we can to let you do it. But you also have Graham in, in your recipes too, grams. I mean, yeah, yeah. so which is amazing for the professionals who who want to actually use this book for inspiration, which there there are many out there. And like, you know, full disclosure, that's just Abrams' house style. Yeah, you know, so Abrams was already in that mindset, and this being restaurant recipes, what we ended up more of our conversions were about like cups. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, wait, wait, no, we had to. Cups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Because all rest- the chefs are working in metric. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's, it's a much tidier. Yeah, it's the it's way better. to do it. We've, we've, it's better. We've, we've, it's better. Yeah, that's the last word. It, it is better, but it's not what everyone cooks. Hillary, on This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? Yes. The best morning pastry with coffee? Croissant. That's like everyone's, and it's like absolutely the right call. Yeah. The best dessert? A really expertly layered cake. Well said. I love that. The best bread? Well-made sourdough. Yeah. Do you make it at home? No. That's one that I let the experts do. Yeah, me too. I'm the same way. I'm not a big bread baker. Your favorite cookbook of all time? My favorite cookbook of all time, there's a Klutz Kids cookbook that I had when I was little, and I still have it. And then I went and bought vintage copies so I could gift it to my daughter and my nephew. That's my favorite cookbook of all Klutz time. Klutz Kids? Yeah. I, I love the name. It's called Kids Cooking, and I think it might be cooking with a K. <laughs> of course. It, 
There's probably like a kid's handprint on with like frosting. Yeah, on and it it's like all animals, and like the recipes are bizarre. But I've made all like I made my parents make all of them with me, and I think that helped me get into the kitchen. So I think that's actually Great my favorite answer. cookbook. A favorite recent cookbook discovery? James Park's Chili Crisp Cookbook. Dope book. Love that book. Love James. Your favorite New York City restaurant classic edition? Russ and Daughters Original Location. Your favorite New York City restaurant new or new-ish edition? They're featured in the book, I'll say Via Carota. Taylor Swift was just there. How about that? Surprise, surprise. I'm kidding. I, that restaurant is great. This it's like perfect people spotting, perfect food, perfect vibe. It's good. Your favorite Los Angeles restaurant classic edition? Tam O'Shanter. Your favorite Los Angeles restaurant new or new-ish edition? Featured in the book, Kismet. Yeah, we're doing their book. There. It's coming out next spring. And aside, Young Bon, new Young Bon. Pretty exciting, right? I'm stoked about it. And um, Katiana was such an amazing resource in the book. So Katiana is featured in a, a few of the interstitials and so many good tips. And I think part of like chefs who have who have toddlers, they are who you should turn to for like expertise on like weeknight <laughs> cooking because they have like that knowledge from being a chef and also the under the gun yeah. of, of it all like when you're eating life. a little kid. The real life. Yeah. The real, real. The real talk. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, Katiana, that's amazing. I can't wait to visit the new Young Bun soon. A few more. Your favorite chef in America right now? Pass. Yeah, I mean. I don't think uh, I'm supposed to answer a question like yeah, that. Yeah, it, it's. It's <laughs> It's not my job to have a favorite. It was my job to ask. Your job to just pass. Yeah. I, I respect <laughs> it. I hope you respect mine. Your favorite vegetable? Broccoli. It's the best. I love it. So many ways to do it. Tyler Cord, bless him, brought to the masses. <laughs> your last one, your favorite sandwich. My favorite sandwich is a BLT on rye. Great. Now, let me ask you, condiment? Mayo. Just mayo. On a BLT? Yeah. Just mayo. Obviously. Good. No avocado. No. <laughs> Thank you, Hillary Dixler Canavan. Thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Thank you for having me. Hey, Eliza, what is up? Not much, Matt. How have you been? I just got back from a trip, and I want to tell you about it. Where Where did you go? Okay, so a little backstory. My wife went to high school and lived in Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Hampton Roads. It's kind of like a full like area in Virginia. And I uh, went to high school there, lived there for a while. Her folks, my in-laws, still live there. And I've been going to Virginia Beach for over 20 years. So I've certainly had my fair share of, of food there. But only recently have I realized that Virginia Beach, no joke, is a really exciting and growing food scene. And I wanted to tell you about it. Yeah, I want to hear all about it. Um, how lucky for you that the food scene is exciting and growing in a place <laughs> you've been to for so long and have to keep going to. I love it. I love your optimism. I mean, I think really what what, what was happening before was certainly less like c civic engagement, especially in Virginia Beach. Norfolk has always had a, a really prominent restaurant scene. Um, but civic engagement currently is, is very strong. And there's an area called the Vibe District, which I know is interesting. There's an official vibe district. Yeah, it's like the vibes are official. They're on the on the flags and on the on the signs. But I think it, it's tied into uh, Virginia Beach Beach District. I don't V I B E. Oh, I mean, hats off to whoever came up with totally. that acronym. Very smart. Yeah. Uh, and this is an area that used to be. It's like right by, down by the boardwalk, and it used to be you know a little bit more desolate and and less developed. And there are two restaurants down there that I want to call out that I just really like, and and it represents um, a real uh, future and youth 
movement in Virginia Beach. Okay, tell me about them. One is called Love Song. And I have to say, if you live in like a mid-sized city, you kill for these types of restaurants. It's very much feels like it could be in Silver Lake or definitely like more West Coast. It could be maybe in Austin. Um, this is all very positive notes. And it's a wine bar. Um, the chef is named Mike Hill, and he, he runs it with a local businessman named Danny Ha. And they opened in August 2021. And it is serving food that I'd call Mediterranean-leaning, maybe French and Italian. Um, things like the Radicchio Caesar and Rockfish Crudo with blood orange capers and mint. There's a nudie that I love that had... Um, trout row in it and so it's like very like polished cooking great natural wine list and it's kind of a restaurant that is like wow virginia beach has a fucking cool wine bar wow i love that okay what's the other one the other one is a little different it's called the pink dinghy and it's right down the street and the owners are stephanie Dietz and chase Pittman. um and it's a in, in this vibe district and i was down there at the saturday farmer's market which was amazing i'm like wow virginia beach has a farmer's market obviously virginia beach has a farmer's market but really like a kind of a bustling scene and they're doing like this like kind of elevated southern food that i think virginia is known for and i'll get to my fried chicken crawl soon because i went on one whoa but I love the pink dinghy and what they stand for. They got a little market inside and just like a really refreshing view of, of like restaurant culture down there. I just it, I liked it a lot. That sounds great. And I have to know about the fried chicken crawl. How many stops was it? Let's go there. Um, two stops. So maybe it's Is not- that a crawl? No, it's like a like it's like a like jumping across lily pads. It's like a hop. A hop. A, it's double, a hop. double feature. It's a double dinner. The the bang bang's been canceled. We're not saying that that does it feel like the bang bang double dinner. I don't know if that's quite right for us. It's not our vibe. We're not gonna call it the bang bang. We'll call it a, a, like a hop. So it was a fried chicken hop, and I went from a place called Bobo's, which I'll start there. Definitely not my favorite, but I liked it. Bobo's is a, a newer spot. I think it's open in the past couple of years. It was it's housed in a in a very old school location that had a, a family restaurant for decades. And and really, what they're doing is I love the way the the, the breading of this fried chicken. And I of course only ordered dark, as you will. Um, it was a really nice crunch to it. Um, and I probably would have called it my my number one pick, but I really do have a number one pick, which I've been going to for years. Okay, tell me about it. It's called Pollard's. And I have to say, Daniel Hausen and I, uh, a chef in Richmond and a friend who's been on the show, we were going back and forth on Instagram about Pollard's versus Bobo's. I think he may be more in the Bobo's crew, but I'm not going to speak for him. He may become on the podcast to talk about it. But really, Pollard's is my guy. Uh, They opened in 1967 and currently have five locations. What I like about Pollard's is you can order 1,000 pieces of chicken. You're looking at me like that's crazy, right? Yeah. I'm like, wait, have you done this? I've not done that. That would be insane. But what my point is that they are a more of a catering operation, and really they, they serve the community of Virginia Beach, uh, and have become known as like that's the good picnic when Pollard's is there. And um, I love the fried chicken; it's super good. It's like really seasoned. It's like a perfect cr- crust. And and really, what I also liked is the pastry case, because they had coconut cake, key lamb pie, and deep dish apple pie, just like sitting there tempting me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I like a place that is more of an institution that everyone can rely on. Do you know about the the oil situation? Is it like a peanut oil fried chicken? I have not done the deep research. Oh, thank you for asking. I, I don't know that. It's a good follow-up. I think it probably is, not to make an assumption, but I've found that most really good 
crispy, crunchy fried chicken. Using peanut? A lot of the time, yeah. Great call. It's good to know. I just know that they had a very cool kitchen. I look back and they like have literally like 20 fryers in there. And like clearly this is where they're doing like the big the, the location I went to. It's where they're doing the heavy lifting. Um, I love that. Okay, a few more, a few more places to call out because I, I really do have a few. Uh, I went to a place in Norfolk called Restaurant at 411 York, located in a small inn. And I love the way it's set up. There's like an outdoor space and there's like a, a cute indoor space. So it's like multi-purpose. But what the menu is serving is like this kind of um, Pan-Asian. Uh, they have Korean uh, octopus and char siu and grilled oysters doing like local wild salts from the local waters. And I really like the the way it's laid out and, and generally I had a great meal. I had a brunch there and, and really, you know, amazing brunch fair. I, I didn't have dinner and I, I would like to go back and it was worth uh, worth noting. Cool. And you said you had more? Yeah, I have a couple more to mention. One is called Heirloom, and that's also in Virginia Beach. And, you know, you go down there, she crab soup is quite popular in, like, the mid-Atlantic region, and the she crab soup was was rich, and, and it felt like, um, you know, Maryland might claim she crab, but I think people in Virginia, especially that that region and the Chesapeake are, are like, yeah, we own it too. I it's like a chowder kind of situation. Yeah, it's chowder and it's 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 like a cream-based uh, cool. crab soup. Delicious. And what I had is a whole fried fish. I had a snapper that was more Thai style. I mean, whole fish is like pretty great. I love that. To me, that's like my ultimate like dinner, night out kind of situation. If you see whole fish and you just got to order it, that's the way I've always approached that that dish. Did you eat the eyeballs? Um, typically not a big eyeball eater. I definitely went with the cheeks. I, I, I kind of cleaned it. I went both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, some people, I've watched people eat whole fish and not flip it. Isn't that insane? That's crazy. I've seen it. Like they weren't hungry or they just didn't know? They didn't know. I don't know. I was like, yeah, How there's a you... whole second side. It's like the B side of a, of a, of a like La Savie Fave LP. You got to like listen to the B side. Yeah, and you gotta just swallow the eyeballs. You need all the collagen. What do you do? You like eyeballs? Are you? Are you I mean, down? I don't feel that positively about them from a flavor perspective, but they're so small and they're really good for you. And also, people never think I'm gonna eat the eyeballs, so I just have to do it just <laughs> do to it. keep people on their toes. Keep you know? them on their toes. I yeah. Like that. All right. So my last Virginia Beach, and this is actually uh, they have locations in Richmond as well. Gelati Celesti. It's gelato, baby. Founded in 1984 in Richmond, Virginia. And I, I love uh, I love a gelato. I love a gelato shop with a drive-through. Whoa, I've never been to a drive-through gelato shop. Right? I mean, I haven't been to too many either. That's but... like American innovation at its finest. Yeah, and they have this they have a a flavor that I have to say is like the best name for a flavor. It's called Just Ask. Isn't that great? <laughs> what is it? You're gonna ask me, right? Yeah. Of course. Um what it is is it's white chocolate ice cream mixed with frozen peanut butter chunks and Oreo. Oh, I need that. Right? Oreos, peanut butter, and white chocolate. It like works. It's quite good. It's like this is kind of that like stoner style mix-in, like Ben and Jerry's inspired gelato. Um, it's not like that super polished Van Leeuwen, like 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 refined, more refined. And I, I like the mix-in style. It's nice. Yeah, that sounds great. They had a bar. They had a Barbie flavor, like which was more like birthday cake. They had rainbow cookie. Nice. And they have ten locations around the the region. And I really, really, really like this place. So that's called uh, Gelati Celesti. Man, Virginia Beach is things are happening there. I have to know. Did you get a uh, like bikini t shirt from the boardwalk? You know what? The boardwalk and I didn't quite didn't quite have a link up this time. Um, I've been there. Um, yeah, I didn't get one of those shirts. Do you want me to get you one next time I'm down there? Absolutely. Um, and maybe I'll just go get one myself. Yeah, it's a cool place. You should visit. I think you'd like it. Cool. 
This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.